Welcome this evening to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community Church. We're so grateful that you uh, have come to be with us this evening and to hear from Michael, and I'm going to introduce him in a moment, but just wanted to tell you a little bit, if you're newer to Christ Community, maybe this is your first time, if this is your first time having been here uh, at one of our campuses, we're so grateful uh, that you've come tonight. I know that walking through the doors of a church isn't always an easy thing to do, so if you've done that for the first time uh, tonight, or for the first time maybe in a long time, uh, thanks so much for doing that. No, that's not an easy thing to do. Hopefully you feel welcome uh, here, safe here tonight, and uh, I hope you'll really enjoy um, what Michael has to share with us uh, this evening. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at Christ Community at this location here in Brookside. And as a church, we really desire to be a convening place um, where we can have important conversations uh, about important questions um, that are uh, relevant to all of us uh, as people. And so tonight we're uh, here to have Michael help us address one of those really important questions, which is, does integrity matter? in business? What is integrity? How does it fit into all of life, but particularly into uh, the business world and that world of transaction and economics and trust and relationship and all that goes on in uh, business? And uh, we are delighted to have Michael uh, here with us to answer this question. Um, In many ways, Michael's uniquely situated to answer a question like, why does integrity in business uh, matter? And let me just give you a little bit of background on Michael to help you understand why he's so uh, uniquely suited to help us wrestle with this question this evening. Uh, Michael was brought up in the Middle East and then later moved to England where he worked for the Lord's Chancellor's Department of Investing Funds. And so he's got background in business and economics. Also, um, while doing research in law and economics at Sheffield University, he taught moral philosophy and lectured at the International Center for Jurisprudence and Human Rights in Strasbourg. And so he brings also sort of an ethical, moral philosophy framework to this question as well. And Michael has been uh, invited to lecture in various places, settings around the world, including uh, leaders at NATO, in Brussels, members of the European Parliament, the White House here in Washington, D.C. He speaks regularly with bankers, investment people, hedge fund managers, um, in particular around the recent global financial crisis. And so uh, Michael brings uh, a lot to this question of does integrity in business matter, that unique blend of, of philosophy, ethics, theology, economics, and, and really despite all that, he's very funny and interesting. Uh, and so we're delighted to have Michael with us, and I think that you'll uh, really enjoy him um, this evening. And so um, without further ado, I invite Michael to come and share with us. Welcome. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's um, great to be able to be with you here tonight and try and answer this question on why uh, integrity matters in business. And as I was actually on the uh, plane uh, flying over to, I was here in the States again also last week, I was actually watching a video debate between um, Boris Johnson, who is the mayor of London, who is actually also a very uh, well-educated guy, studied at Oxford, very, very brilliant, loves quoting classical Greek and Latin just from memory, even when giving political speeches. And um, I'm not sure Ted Cruz did that when he was here a little while ago, but uh, he does it all the time. And he's even been known to answer difficult questions from uh, journalists in ancient Greek and then told them they have to go translate it to figure out what he said. And he was uh, debating with a female professor from Cambridge University. And it was a, it was a packed debate. And it was lighthearted and serious at the same time. It was basically Greece versus Rome, which, which of these two was the greatest classical empire. 
and uh, Boris was, was arguing for Greece. They had the Greek ambassador to uh, the UK uh, sitting there on the very front row, and then um, uh, the professor from Cambridge was arguing, arguing for Rome. Um, um, I don't think there are any Romans there, but I, I think the, um, I'm not sure if the, got, she got the uh, Italians in. But what was very interesting at one point was the female professor quoted from a letter um, that uh, Cicero's brother, who was one of the great classical orators of the ancient world, uh, Cicero's uh, brother wrote to him to give him advice when he was running to be elected to the Senate in Rome. And uh, this is uh, the advice he actually gave his brother in the letter. This is going back now, you know, over two and a half millennia. He says, you have to learn the knack of remembering people's names. Adopt an easy manner, and you have to be seen everywhere. Be generous, get a good reputation, and you have to create a sense of hope for the future of the country. Whatever else you do, you must recognize the voters, or at least pretend you do. Then just suppose there's some desirable quality you don't have. Pretend to have it and make it look convincing. Flattery is a shabby thing in general, but, it is, but when you're standing for election, it is essential. And make sure you have a face and an expression that matters, uh, matches the different expectations of the different audiences you meet. People like to have things promised to them. And if people want something you cannot do, either extricate yourself from the problem or promise it anyway. The former is the mark of a good man, the latter is the mark of a good candidate. The other thing you have to think about is your reputation and public opinion. Make sure you put all of your effort into being a good canvasser. And also make sure that people are always coming to your house, that you look the part, and that the electorate somehow feel like they're sharing in your moment of history. Your campaign must be glamorous, but you must dig up the dirt too. If you can, see that you can bring some accusation of crime, fiddling of expenses, or a sex scandal against your rivals. Now, this just goes to show, I guess, that we haven't necessarily, our politics really hasn't changed that much in all of those years. And these questions of integrity, or certainly creating the appearance of it, have just been as important back then as they are now. Now, this question of why does integrity matter, I guess at one point I'm going to try and argue it matters because it matters in all of life, although we will take a particular look into the business world. Now, our integrity has become one of the great business, uh, one of the great buzzwords of the 21st century. Um, I'm sure some of you here will read the paper every day. The paper I read every day back home is the Financial Times. It's impossible to read that newspaper without the question of integrity being raised on almost every single page of the paper every day. It's just simply writ large. And I'm not sure whether people would have thought about that. Now, what's been interesting for me is in the last few years, I've been invited into uh, all kinds of um, different businesses, and very often they have the word integrity either in their motto or in their mission statement. And some of the very old firms, what they like to do is they translate the word integrity into Latin. So they, you see integritas, because it gives gravitas to the motto that they want to give. I saw at least two people smile at that, so I'm glad you understood it. <laughs> now, the trouble is, is with like a word with integrity, we don't know what it means. You translate it into Latin, it seems even more far removed from us. Uh, what do these words actually mean? And, and for many of us, they, they've simply become empty. As I was uh, just preparing this, I was reminded of a story of a headmaster of a school who wanted to have a competition um, for, to de design a school motto, a school shield for the kids. They didn't have one. He thought it would be a great idea to have it. So he set up a competition amongst all the children. He got thousands of entries, but there was one which for him stood out. And it was, I hear, I see, I learn. So the headmaster had a had a shield developed and had the motto written around the edge of the shield. He sent it off to the printer. Now, the printer was a man of some education, and he rang up the headmaster, and he said, you know what? If you allow me to translate this into Latin, 
It's going to have a beautiful ring to it, especially if I can use the more passive form of the verb I am taught at the end. He says, but it will, it will sound great. So the headmaster said, that's beautiful. Well, imagine his surprise when two weeks later, he opens this box of these badges and the shirt, school shirts with the school motto and the shield, and written around the shield are the Latin words, audio, video, disco. <laughs> now, the, these, these words are important. We have to ask, what does this mean? And if you were to look up the meaning of the word integrity in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll see that it will give a series of definitions, as it does with most words. Negatively, it is undivided, uncorrupted, sinless. Positively, it's defined, defined as wholeness, that of being complete, of being whole. It means to be at one. It means that no matter how you cut someone's character, no matter how you come at it, you're going to get the same thing all the way through. They are integrated. There is no division within them. They are whole. And this pursuit of wholeness is something which is very important. Indeed, many individuals are looking for a form of completeness in their life, which is why for many people, when they look at the world of business, they wonder when they can stop so they can maybe pursue something which they feel would allow them to be more complete and more whole. Now, in order to frame my remarks to you, what I'm going to actually do is I'm going to borrow an outline from another speaker and use it for this evening. I, I don't think he's going to miss it because he hasn't used it for a while. His name's Aristotle. Um, he lived a little while ago in ancient Greece. And one of his uh, most, uh, one of his uh, sort of most, most more popularly read books today, although certainly maybe not his most significant, is entitled The Rhetoric. And in Rhetoric, Aristotle talks about, um, uses three categories, which I'm going to use just to frame my remarks around, although I will be using these words in slightly different ways to how he intended them. These are ethos, pathos, logos, or to put it in a more colloquial thing, ethos, where we get ethic from, pathos, the passion which informs and drives you, logos, what is the word that gives meaning to all of this? Now, fascinatingly, when Aristotle talked about ethos, ethos, what he said was, when you are listening to anyone speak, the question you should ask yourself is not what is the ethic they espouse. The question you should ask yourself is what is the ethic they live by? In other words, can you trust them? Who do you trust? in this day and age? Where do you derive that sense of ethos from in order to inform who you can trust? You see, we live in a universe which is ethically and morally governed. It was built that way, and it is inescapable. Just think about this in terms of relationships. All of our relationships in this world are ethically and morally governed. Our friends are a group of people whom we can trust. They think they'll, we know they will keep up their promises and they will, they will protect our confidences. We therefore know that we can be close to them. You cannot be friends with someone who you think is going to betray you. So in our friendships, in the most important relationships that we have, we are asking whether that consciously or subconsciously, all the time, can I trust you? It is what allows all forms of intimacy. Now, this is just as true in business relationships as it is in personal ones. Now, in business relationships, it's not the fact that we won't get into a business relationship with someone we feel we can't trust, but what we do is we will demand a higher rate of return for any given investment if we feel the person on the other side of the deal is untrustworthy because it represents a bigger risk. So whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, in the business world, we make ethical and moral judgments multiple times almost every single day, which is how we partly determine, as I say, what we're looking for in terms of rate of return. 
the, it is impossible to try to uh, escape this kind of governance that we see in our world. Now, uh, a couple of uh, years ago, I uh, got into watching a TV series called Lie to Me, and I was fascinated by it because it was based on the real-life research of an Oxford um, uh, guy who did his uh, research into how can you tell if someone's lying. And what this guy figured out quite a few generations, uh, quite a few decades ago, was that regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of where you were raised, when we lie, our faces tell, give a universal expression to it. Now, he subsequently made a serious amount of money advising governments and very senior business executives around the world how to spot when someone's lying, which is why when you now watch any modern spy movie, you'll also see cameras trained on people's eyes, the corners of their mouths, parts of their face, to look for these micro-expressions. You can pick them up with the naked eye, but if you really know what you're looking for and you can make it much bigger, it's much easier to see. And so this guy has now made millions by detecting lying, and it's a universal language. To say it's simply not culturally dependent whatsoever. Now, I loved this program. I was very sad when it got abandoned two and a half seasons in, and I actually was with one of the producers who was responsible for delivering that program. And when I found out you know, what he did, I said, I love that program. Why did you cancel the show? And the guy said to me, well, the problem was, is he says, only people who wanted to think while they were watching TV want, watched it, people like you, and there just aren't enough people out there like, you know, for that. So you know, it wasn't a profitable show for us. And um, things like this just go to reinforce one of my own personal convictions, which is the total amount of intelligence in the universe is fixed, but the population is growing. So <laughs> the, now, what you would expect with a man who has dedicated his life to detect a lie, you would also expect such a person to have given some thought to the consequences of lying. And indeed, he has. And here's one of the things which he has to say. He says this. He says, trust is a matter of faith that the person who is trusted won't exploit that trust. Intimacy in close working relationships, romance, and or friendship requires and in fact depends on trust. Yet it is well known that the last person to realize that he or she is being betrayed is the, pers uh, being betrayed is the person who is suffering the betrayal. Why? Because the betrayed person's trust quite simply blocks out the recognition of any signs of the underlying breach of faith. All those signs that everybody else so easily picks up on. We don't want to learn that our trust has been betrayed, that the person we hired is embezzling, that our children are stealing from our purses. It is terrible to discover that our trust has been misgiven. Consequently, most of us willfully avoid any clues to its discovery. Once trust has been betrayed, can it ever be restored? Not always, and not by everyone. Even when the betrayal is forgiven and the betrayed person does not want to give up the relationship, it may still, in fact, be very difficult to completely trust again. That is the price of lying about very serious matters, the loss of trust which may never be recovered. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, results in the suspicious person's misery and undermines relationships. Let me just repeat that. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, Sorry, undermines relationships and results in a suspicious person's misery. All of us face choices. Do we, based on faith, take the risk of being misled by trusting someone? Or do we take the risk of not only disbelieving a truthful person, but never being able to establish close connections because of our chronic suspicion? He's absolutely correct. And if any of you have suffered a form of betrayal that has gone so deep and hurt so much, that you find you're unable to trust anyone again, forming close relationship becomes impossible. Because all form of relationship 
does depend and rely on trust. So this question of who we trust is vitally important. Who do you trust? Where does that moral sense come from for you about who you can trust? Where do you get it from? Now, in the business world in particular, when we start thinking like this, the question that we automatically go to is, look, can I afford to be moral? Okay, it's all fine saying, hey, look, trust depends on this and it's regulated by this, but I live in the real world, and I, my question is, can I afford it? Now, it is true that there is a cost of compliance, and that cost of compliance is high. And as a matter of fact, if you want to explain your business to me, I can sit down and calculate it for you. But although the cost of compliance is high, the cost of failure is catastrophic. If you can remember back to September 2001, September 11, you will remember that the stock markets around the world fell in light of those terrorist attacks. Now, what you may not necessarily remember is that by early January, February 2002, the market had largely recovered. Then we had WorldCom, Enron, and the whole catalog of those failures, and the market fell further and faster than it did after the terrorist attacks of, of September 11, telling us that what the market feared most was not a terrorist attack from without, but a moral corruption from within. You see, the cost of compliance is high, but the cost of failure is catastrophic. I had a brother who used to work for an accountancy company called Arthur Anderson. I can remember speaking on issues of integrity and business in South Africa to the CEOs and CFOs of some of the largest financial groups based in Africa in Cape Town five days after the collapse of Andersons. And some of you here are old enough to know what that is, and if you don't know what it is, find someone who looks older and wiser and they'll explain who Arthur Anderson were. And I can remember looking out to this group of CEOs and CFOs who all sat with their arms folded, most of them looking very stern, and my opening question was this. I said, if I came here a week ago and told you that one of the world's most prestigious, aggressive, and highest-paying accountancy firms in the world would be wiped off the face of the planet in three days because of a serious moral and ethical failure of one of its employees, would you have believed me? You could just see almost every set of hands unfold. The cost of compliance is high, but the cost of failure is catastrophic. I remember speaking in one of the world's largest plank, uh, large, uh, one of the uh, banking groups in the world that has one of the largest private client banking groups, uh, client personnel base that there is. And we're in this room, and I'm there for a week. We're talking about systemic risks of financial markets. And, and I just, this is just after the whole WorldCom Enron thing. And one of the guys in the room, there are only 10 people there, but one of them said, when do you think confidence to the market will return? And I remember thinking, you know what, this guy earns more every minute than I do every year. <laughs> and you're asking me for financial advice. So I simply looked at him and I said, well, I think I can answer that relatively quickly. I said, if you kind of think that the kind of moral and ethical failure we've seen in the market is, is just a one-off, then confidence will return soon. But if it's systemic, we have a major problem. And the color drained from everybody's face in the room, and only one word came to mind, sell. <laughs> we live with the consequences of this every single day. What is the ethic you live by? Where does it come from? Now, you may notice as I go through this, I'm going to leave you with many more questions than I may be answering while I'm speaking. Now, why do I do that? While well, I'm involved in education, and so what we do, especially in philosophy, is we take simple ideas and we make them so complicated, people can't understand it. Then you need to employ someone to come and explain it to you, and then leave you with a hunger to know more. It's like a self-employment cycle. It's been working very well for thousands of years. <laughs> Who do you trust? Where do your ethics come from? 
What is the ethic you are living by? Is it entirely possible, even as you're sat here this evening, you don't live up to your own standards, let alone anyone else's? Secondly, pathos, pathos. What is it that drives you? What is it that gets you out of bed and actually makes things worthwhile for you? What is it that is your motivating you? Now, we talk a lot in our culture about success. Now, the trouble with the word success is it is largely a meaningless term. I love what G.K. Chesterton said about this when he said, success simply is to say that something is. A millionaire is successful at being a millionaire. A donkey is successful at being a donkey. And what I find fascinating, particularly as a Christian, is that in the King James Bible, at least, the word success only appears a couple of times, and in each time, the word success is used to translate a primitive form of the verb to be. Whenever we say that something is successful, we are simply saying that it is. The question is successful at what? But there's an even deeper question than that. Let's suppose you were to come to me and say, hey, Michael, I see you have one of those new iPad Airs, which I've now managed to chip, but you know, um, are you having any success with it, with this new iPad Air? And I say, you know what? It's amazing. It's incredible. I own a small coffee shop, and do you know the new iPad Air is the exact size it needs to be to serve two medium-sized cappuccinos. And two medium-sized cappuccinos is the most common order we have in our coffee shop. So I've issued one of these to every single one of our waiting staff, and from now on we'll be serving all of our cappuccinos off iPad Airs. <laughs> now, if that was my answer to your question, you have any success with it, you would look at me and you'd say, Michael, I, I don't think you know what that thing is for. What are you for? Successful at what? What is the purpose that informs the passion that motivates you to do what you do? Now, this is one of the greatest challenges humankind has always faced. In the book of Proverbs, it says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its path leads to death. And as you go through this world, it's all too easy to recognize a pattern where we've set ourselves on a course of direction, convinced it was the right thing to do, and it's something that we should pursue, only to find many years later, or maybe even decades later, when we finally arrive there, it's the last place we thought we wanted to be. It's not just enough to follow something which we feel that we want or desire. The question is, where will it take us? What is it that helps, informs us on this point? Now, C.S. Lewis put this very pictorially and very, very beautifully, because he likened ethics and thinking about ethics in this purpose to being the captain of a boat. He said, look, if you're the captain of a boat and you're out on the sea, there are three questions you need to answer. One, how do I stop from sinking? That's your personal ethics. Two, how do I stop from bumping into other ships? That's your social ethics. And three, why am I out here in the first place? That's your essential ethics. And you have to answer it. Now, I said earlier that we sometimes say, yeah, but Michael, I live in the real world. Well, we all live in the real world. There isn't a single organization in the world that doesn't have its moral convictions right at the center of who it is. Not one. Not a single organization or indeed individual can avoid it. And if you don't believe me, if you think it's possible to run an organization that doesn't have morals and ethics right at the center of it, and you're doubting that, then here's a simple thing. Go join the mafia. And after you've joined them, try stealing from them, lying to them, cheating them, or taking something that isn't yours you will discover that they have a highly developed sense of ethics, and their compliance department is second to none. <laughs> they respond clearly, swiftly, and suddenly, both to you and possibly your family. The question in life is not, is there an ethical center, a moral center, 
to the organization. The question is, how far does it extend? Now, if you're in the mafia, that said circle only extends to the family. Within the family, that moral and ethical sense is absolute, and any violation is punished immediately. But outside of that circle, you can do whatever you want to. So the question isn't, is there such a circle? The question is, how big is it? Does it apply just to ourselves, just to the family, just to the corporation, just to your city, just to your country, to the world? The question isn't whether it's at the center. The question is, how big a circle is it? That's why it's simply impossible to escape from it. The trouble is, is when we have an inner set of moral convictions that lead us to think we definitely need to stay one way to help stay afloat. But when we go to work today, we find ourselves constantly violating it. We find ourselves divided and split. And it feels like we're at times you can even be leading a double life. It's interesting how many corporations feel it's perfectly fine to go and cheat other people, but you're caught embezzling from them and you'll find yourself in jail in a flash. This world is crying out for integrity and we're just looking for leaders, we're looking for people who we know we can trust and they are simply the same all the way through. The cost of compliance is high, but the cost of failure is catastrophic. It's catastrophic in your personal life, in your family life, in corporate life, and I'm not going to say anything about politics because it's far too dangerous given the situation you're currently in right now. Apart from the fact, all I wish to say on this matter, and then we'll leave it alone, is you left the British Empire because you had taxation without representation, but what do you have now? <laughs> now, ethos. What is the ethic you live by? Where does it come from? Are you maintaining your own standards? Pathos. What motivates you? What is the passion that informs you? What is the set of moral principles that guides and controls that passion? The Cicelli Professor of Economic History at the University of Oxford points out that when our passions fly out of control, we, are, we destroy ourselves. We start off in life with scarcity, and we, think scarce, we mistake scarcity for moral conviction. But that's a mistake, because when affluence comes, scarcity becomes scarce. So a long time ago, before we had everything, we had to make difficult choices because we couldn't choose everything. But it wasn't a moral, ethical thinking that was guiding us, it was just scarcity. But when scarcity itself becomes scarce in the presence of affluence, what is it that drives and guides those passions? And as he so ably points out, some of the greatest self-destructions in this world happen when no one, when we simply haven't found that set of principles which will guide and lead us and stop us from destroying ourselves while pursuing success in the process. What is it that motivates you? What is guiding it? Why are you out here in the first place? You have to answer that ethical question regardless of what you may happen to believe in this room. Thirdly, logos, word. That's what this Greek word means. What is the word? What is the logic? Logos is the root behind the English word logic. What, that gives meaning to what you do. What is it that allows you to interpret your life, to figure out whether you're on the right course or not? Now, a long time ago in this world, we used to talk about vocation, the idea that there was some kind of calling. Now, today's we just simply talk about career, but there is a very big difference. A vocation implies there is a call. There is something in our life that is calling us to go in a certain way, and we desperately need to recall this sense of calling. It is absolutely vital. What, what is it, what is the word that informs your life? Now, from a Christian perspective, you can see the sense of calling happening right at the very beginning of the disciple's life. 
When Jesus first called people to follow him, he went to a group of fishermen and he asked them a question, have you caught any fish? And they said, no, we haven't. And Jesus said to them, well, let down your nets. And they look at this boy, because they're professional fishermen and he's a young, inexperienced carpenter who clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. And they say, well, we've been out fishing at night. That's when you go fishing, because it's hard for the fish to see you coming, where the waters are deep. That's where the fish live. And we didn't catch anything. And it's now daytime, and we're in the harbor. So what they're basically saying to Jesus is, but they're being very polite, you're a bit of an idiot. Jesus looks at Peter and says, let down your nets. And for the first time in his life, Peter goes, catching, goes fishing not to catch any fish. And when he pulls them, and as he lets down his nets, he says, very well, Lord, at your word, I will let down my nets, and he goes fishing for no other reason than the Lord of his life commanded him to. <laughs> when is the last time you went to work for no other reason, knowing it's what you were meant to do? Now, he's convinced he won't catch anything. He pulls up the net, the net begins to break, and he looks at Jesus, and the first words out of his mouth are, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Peter's first conviction of sin, that there's something wrong in his life, doesn't happen in a temple, doesn't happen in a religious service, doesn't happen in a sermon, it happens in the workplace. Because that's where the rubber hits the dead road. There isn't a single job in this world where the question of integrity isn't raised on day one. Now a little bit later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples don't know what to do, so they go out fishing. And they haven't caught anything. And they're rowing back to shore, and Jesus is standing on the shore of the, of the lake. And he looks out at them, and he says, have you caught anything? And they say, no. And Jesus says, let down your nets. And they let down the nets, and as they try to pull it up, the boat begins to sink because there are so many fish. And Peter, because he's a fairly bright guy, goes, I think I've seen this somewhere before. <laughs> this is reminding me of something. And he strips off, jumps into the water, and he swims ashore. So imagine the scene. He's swimming ashore, the other guys are towing the net in behind them, all the fish are there, they drag the net onto the shore, they turn around, and what is Jesus doing? Well, he's cooking fish. Where did the fish come from? If Jesus is the living word that created this universe and informs and calls all of us, he doesn't need your fish. I know we're sitting in a church, but Christ's call for people to follow him isn't because he wants to make you poorer by making you give away 10% of your income. His call on our life is not simply the only word that informs our existence and helps us know what we're here for. It is also the word which can transform our life because we need more than information with most of our lives. We need transformation. Before I became a Christian, I was raised in a Muslim culture and um, family, you know, we didn't go to church. And I was deeply distrustful of Christians. I felt about Christians the same way I felt about communists. They had nothing and they wanted to share it with me. And <laughs> I, um, my basic issue was this. I was very happy and I was very fulfilled as a person. And I, I, I don't think, no one ever asked me this question, but I think if someone said to me, Michael, out of 10, how well is your life doing? I would have said eight out of 10 because things were going well. You know, I was happy, I was fulfilled, I was doing well, I came from a good family, we had money, we had position, you know, the future looked good. 
And for me, to become a Christian felt like dropping from 8 out of 10 to 2 out of 10. Does that make sense? In other words, life would be worse for me as a Christian than as a non-Christian. So why would I give up everything to get nothing in return? Now, I came to a point in my own life where I became convinced that the Christian faith was true, and that sent me into a depression. And here's why. If it was true, it meant that I should believe it, and I should become a Christian. But here was the problem. I was pretty certain there was no way I could live a good a life as I was meant to live. In other words, by becoming a Christian, I'll both become a hypocrite and I'll stop doing the things I enjoyed the most. Hence why I'm now going to drop from 8 out of 10 to 2. It's going to make me thoroughly miserable. Now, for me, the pursuit of truth was such an important thing that having wrestled with it for, for months and months and months, I felt I couldn't say no to it anymore. And, and on the day I became a Christian, I went to a group of my closest friends, none of whom were Christians, and I said, I need to tell you something. I'm going to become a Christian today. From now on, I won't be enjoying myself anymore. <laughs> but it simply felt that I had to sacrifice my only shot at satisfaction and happiness in this world on the altar of truth. Now, I was radically surprised by what happened next. You see, we talk a lot about this world about integrity, but there's something very uncomfortable most of us don't come to. A couple of, um, when I was giving um, a lecture on integrity and business in the city of London last year, I was doing some research online, and um, I came across a very well-known professor, who I'll just leave unnamed, um, at a very, very prestigious, one of the most prestigious schools in the world, and I was listening to him give a talk on morals and ethics and business and so on. And then he said something which I found very controversial, at least to me. Here's what he said. He said, when the chips are down and when times are tough, science has proved people will always do basically the right thing. We're all good people, and when it's really tough and when things are exposed, we'll always, do, we'll always be good. Now, I found that highly suspicious. Here's what I think is the case. My observation is most people I know desire to lead a noble life. We even dream about it. We dream of being that upright person with integrity that people respect and admire, and we take tough, tough decisions and we stand by them. Most of us aspire to that. The trouble is, is we don't do it. And more often than not, the very things that we thought we would never do, somehow we find ourselves doing. One of the earliest Christians he put it like this, I don't understand what I do, what I don't want to do, I keep on doing. What I hate to do, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Although I want to do what is good, evil is there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, that is a struggle I think most people identify with. Most of us in the room have the desire to do what is good. We dream of leading a noble life. That's actually what we want to do. The trouble is implementation. At the same time, the very things that we thought we never would do, and when we were much younger, promised ourselves we'd never get into, we find ourselves doing. So as much as we talk about integrity, there's a much harder question we have to answer too, which is what do you do when integrity fails? Because all of us are going to hit that point of failure, of integrity. Now, if you are sat here today and you honestly believe you're a good person, you've never done anything wrong, there's only one way out of that state of self-deception. You must get married. <laughs> now, how, therefore, do we answer this question, what do we do when integrity fails? And when integrity fails, you have to be able to answer yourself three questions. Is there anyone I can talk to is there a process, a fair process which is involved? And is there any hope for redemption at the end? 
If you don't know who to talk to, you feel there's no form of fair process, and there's no hope for redemption, whenever integrity fails, you will bury it. Whether it's in your personal life, your family life, your corporate life, or your government life. And you hope it's not discovered. One of the most compelling things to me about the Christian faith is not that it promises some kind of pipe dream, but it's very clear about what we should do. But right at the very center of it is forgiveness. Integrity has failed, but there is someone we can talk to. There has been a process, and there is the hope of redemption at the end of it. This is precisely the message of the Christian gospel. Not that God is shouting from on high telling us to do better, but that He stepped into this world. He's made Himself one with us. Our failure and our sin has become His. He paid the price for us. He's conquered over the consequences through His resurrection, and He offers forgiveness as a gift. He offers us that forgiveness, not at the expense of His justice, but through it. When Christ goes to the cross, He pays the price for what we have done. And he then gives us the goodness which is his. When you become a Christian, the reason I didn't sink into depression was I wasn't pretending to be a good person. I was declaring that I'd become a forgiven person. I wasn't any better than anyone else around me. The simple truth was I could finally admit where I'd failed, acknowledge where I'd gone wrong, realize the rejection I'd done of other people, even of God himself, and realized that I needed forgiveness just as much as everyone else, and forgiveness was being offered through the person of Christ. What is the word that not only informs your life, but is able to transform it, that's able to change these locked patterns of behavior that we wrestle with? The biggest surprise for me after I became a Christian was um, one and a half days later, I sat next to this model now, she was one of the reasons why I didn't want to become a Christian. I um, had unsuccessfully, I freely admit, been attempting to uh, woo her, and it hadn't been working. But I was a persistent fellow, and, you know, I had a feeling that if I became a Christian, God was going to interfere my, with my plans that I had in this particular direction. And so, after I became a Christian, I decided I wasn't going to tell anyone about it, because I wasn't sure if I could explain what had happened to me. So Monday morning, I see her, and as I even walk, in, I walk into the room where she happens to be, and she looks at me, and she says, you've changed. First words out of her mouth, what's happened to you? I said, I, I don't think I can explain it. She said, try. I said, well, day and a half ago, I, I became a Christian. She said, what does that mean? I said, well, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm entirely sure of how well I can explain it, but all I know is I'm not the person I used to be. So she leant over, smiled, and said, would you like to sleep with me? <laughs> and I remember looking at her saying, if you'd asked me 36 hours ago, <laughs> the answer to this question would have been yes. I said, but today the answer is no. And the thing which surprised me the most was I wasn't in the least bit disappointed with my answer. It wasn't just the fact that God had forgiven me what I had done. He was beginning to change what I wanted to do. That's what real freedom looks like. Well, that's probably about enough for me. 
So we're going to move into a time of Q&A. Now, you may have noticed that on your, your seat, there's a feedback card. And let me just explain how that will work. Um, there's a space at the bottom for you to be able to write questions. And if you would like to be able to write a question, then just write it, fold the card in hard, pass it to the end of the aisle. Someone will come and collect it. And then someone will just select questions out and, read, and, and I will read them and then try and answer them. Now, the chances are we're going to get more questions than we can answer this evening. Um, that's because I can't eat before I speak. And so you know, in roughly about half an hour or so, I'll be walking out here to go and have something to eat. I know it looks hard to believe, given how trim and athletic I've kept my body through all of these years, <laughs> but a little bit of food intake is necessary. If you leave your email address with your question, we will interpret that as meaning that even if we don't get personally to your question now, you would like to hear from us. And within the next 48 hours, someone will email you and see whether you'd like to talk about your question, whether you'd like to, us to send you a, a link to a talk answering your question, give you something to read, and then talk about your question. So anyway, someone will be in contact with you, and we'll do our best. Now, you may also want to just give some feedback to the people who organize this. You can say anything you want to. It's perfectly anonymous. Write whatever you want, doesn't matter how rude it is. I'll analyze your handwriting, I'll find out who you are, and I'll track you down to your place of work. Now, at the same time, you may also be sitting here listening to what I've said this evening, and there are three basic responses to what I've shared today, especially as it relates to the Christian faith. And they are yes, no, maybe. You may be sat here and you think, no, I disagree with almost everything you've said, and I think you're wrong. Well, I hope at the very least it's been worthwhile and got you thinking, even if you're disagreeing with me. And if you would like to ask a question, please do. And if you want to talk about it with someone more, you know, we're very happy to talk, and the people who are here and who are connected with Christchurch right across the city and would love to be able to talk with you. And so if you want that, just indicate that on your card. Now, you may be sitting here and you're thinking, maybe. Maybe there's something in this, I don't know. Well, if you want to find out more, then if you leave, again, your email address or phone or some way of contacting you, and you tick the box that says, tell me more, someone will get in contact with you and, again, arrange a time for a coffee or a talk or invite you to something else. Now, if you're on the outside, however, looking in on all of this, and you're sitting here thinking the answer to this is yes, actually, yes, I do believe this. Maybe it's possible you were once with Christ and now you've gone a very far way away. You know who Christ is, you know why he came, you know the significance of the cross, and you know you need to say yes to him and come before him. Well, if you take count me in, what you're saying is, look, I know this is for me. Again, just leave your name, your email address. We'll get in contact with you within the next 36 hours. If I can, I personally would love to talk to you, whether it's on the phone or in person before I leave the city. And um, we'll just take it from there. So if you want to take a moment just to fill this out, um, write down your question. Say, just fold your card, pass it down to the center. The very fetching young man in the white shirt and the blue jeans um, will... Uh, uh, collect the cards. You'll bring them up to the front here. Uh, it's your Bill. Tyler. Uh, Tyler will collect them. Tyler will bring them to Bill. Bill's going to find the ones which he thinks are going to cause me the most amount of embarrassment. He will then hand them up to me, and then if I don't like your question, I'll just read out something fictitious and answer something I know anyway. Um, you've done very well. Thank you for staying awake. If you have to leave at this point, um, you know, because you've got something more, impressing to, more pressing to go to, that's perfectly okay. We have cameras installed. We know who you are anyway. Uh, but thanks for coming this evening. Do take a moment. 
and um, an essay. And then once Tyler's collected in a few cards, uh, we'll then just move into a time of Q&A. But thank you for giving me your attention. You've been very, very generous with your time. What we'll do is we'll, we'll start with these ones. Tyler will keep coming up and down. So if you're thinking of questions, you haven't done it yet, we'll just keep collecting and bringing them down to the front. And um, we will, we'll just see how long it, it, it takes to go. Um, would you like me to give a stump speech or have you all voted anyway for your, for your candidate anyway? OK, all right, we better do the Q&A then. OK, there's another one down there. Okay, Tyler, why don't you bring those forward as well, and then we all can have a look. How can I... <laughs> I've been asked this question before, I think. How can I honestly answer a client's question when I know with absolute certainty that the unvarnished truth will result in certain failure for my team? Now, we all want to know who you are and who you work for. No. There are two parts to your question, especially the way you've asked it in terms of what's called the unvarnished truth, because I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. Um, sadly, in our culture, we've put it, created a dichotomy between the ideas of what are called truth and love. So most people, including most Christians, think in life there's a choice. Will I be a loving, kind kind of person, which means I never really disagree with anyone, or will I be a truthful person, which basically means I'll always tell the truth, but I'm probably not going to have that many friends. Now, sometimes you hear people use the phrase, I'm going to tell you the following truth in love. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed anything about that, but when someone says, I'm going to tell you the truth in love, normally two things automatically flow. One, what they say is never loving, and secondly, it's not normally even truthful. If they were about to speak truth in love, they don't need to advertise it. That would be me like saying, I'm now going to speak very kindly. Well, I don't need to tell you I'm going to speak very... You can tell whether I'm speaking kindly or not. Does it make sense? By my body language and my mo everything else. The idea that truth and love somehow exclude each other is illustrated by the very simple question, when someone says, I love you, does it matter if they're telling the truth? In the NatSal survey in the UK, which is the largest attitude to sexual lifestyle in the world, which is done in the UK every 10 years, and the British government use it to set health policy for part of our National Health Service, in the one that was done about 12 years ago or so, one of the questions which was asked to the British population, I think it was, was it 50,000 or 80,000 people surveyed, you can Google it and find out, People were asked the question, does adultery matter? And a majority, clear majority, a majority of the population said it doesn't matter. Just over a year ago, I think maybe two years ago, they did this, another follow-up, which they do, they do it every 10 years. They've been doing it since Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. And they repeated the question. And this time, three quarters of the population said, yes, it does matter, and it's a very big deal. So then I got interviewed on every BBC station in the United Kingdom, and the question was what this. Is the media out of touch with common conviction? Why have we seen this massive, almost 30% swing on this issue in 10 years? And my response to that was, look, a faithful friend is someone who keeps your promises. An unfaithful lover is someone who's betrayed them. If you have ever experienced the pain of unfaithfulness in your life, truth in love really does matter. So, if by unvarnished you mean, in a sense, saying things in a way that's just going to cause the maximum amount of damage and whatever, 
then I would encourage you, that's not the way to think about it. Now, if your question, however, is, look, I'm burying something, you know, because I'm scared about the consequences, let me ask you another question. I, I don't know how many of you in this room were unaffected by the financial crash of 2008. I don't know who you bank with. Does it matter to you whether the person who holds your banking account is embezzling your account or not and telling you the truth about what's in there? Is it important? The trouble with making a stand for integrity is it will always cost, always. Now, I have to be, I want to be careful how I phrase this. I can remember talking with various senior bankers around the world before the financial crash, some of whom told me, this is what I'm involved in, and it's hugely problematic. Sovereign debt deals, mortgage deals, all kinds of stuff. What should I do? And I'm going to give them the answer I gave you, which is, it is always cost to stood up for integrity. Always. Now, after the crash happened, I couldn't help but ask myself a question, which was this. After the financial crash of 2008, and most of the people, many of the bankers I speak to now are convinced we're going to have an even bigger one in the next, sometime in the near future, but no one's sure exactly when. The question everybody was asking themselves was, who can I trust? And where will leadership come from to get us out of this mess? The people who would have got potentially fired for making a stand for truth in 2002, 3, 4, 5 would have been at the front of the line to step back in after 08. Now, sometimes the timeline isn't that neat. Sometimes it's much more difficult. I remember one of my colleagues is a guy called John, Professor John Lennox. He's a brilliant mathematician. He was talking to a young Irish builder. He was an electrician. And uh, he was a member of John Lennox's church. And this electrician had got fired. Here's what happened. He was working building new homes. And the contractor came to him and said, you're wiring houses. You do two and a half houses a day. Everybody else does five. And the guy says, look, I don't understand it. I'm working as hard as I can. I'm actually putting in more hours than every, all the other electricians working on this site. You know, and I, but I'm following the regulations. I'm doing this, this, and this. And I just don't see how you can do it any faster than two and a half a day. As a matter of fact, if I was just working an eight-hour day, I'd be doing two. And the contractor said to him, son, no one looks under the floorboards. That stuff doesn't matter. To which he said, my Lord does. How important would it be to you if you're, uh, you as a young family or your grandchildren bought a home that burned down because of an electrical fire? Would it matter? Or would the X thousand you save really be that important to you? I can't answer the question because it's very, very difficult to know exactly what the case is, but these are just some of the very difficult things that have always been the, the issue. You have to ask the question, is there any hope for redemption? But buried failure, when it actually comes out, it's catastrophic. And if you work for Volkswagen right now, you'll certainly understand what we were talking about. Wow. Has the church failed to be integrous? Wow. Uh, yes, is the answer to that question. Not always and not everywhere. But yes. It's very interesting. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians which is one of the earliest Christian pieces of literature ever written, is writing to the church, and he's trying to help people discern between the true gospel and the false gospel and the true Christian and the false Christian. And here's what he basically says. He says, look, there are two gospels, but one gospel is not good news at all, because that's what the word gospel means. He says there are two types of good news, but really there's only one. One 
The, the true gospel basically says we've all failed and God is willing to forgive us. And if you throw himself on his grace and his mercy, he will forgive you through Christ and you follow him. But the gospel, which is no gospel at all, is the one that says, if I follow the law and try and be a good person, God will bless me. And Paul says, that's not a blessing, that is a curse. And if you're living with that kind of legalism in your life, cursed is the person who presents it and cursed is the person who lives by it. Now, at the same time, he's trying to distinguish between the true Christian and the false Christian. And what he also basically says later on in the letter is he says, look, there's a fruit of the Spirit. So the, fruit, the word fruit is in the singular. There's a fruit. Christians produce a fruit. And when you taste it, it should taste of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on. You may be familiar with those words. It's in the book of Galatians chapter 5. So what Paul is saying to his critics is, bite me. But he's saying it in a very nice way. <laughs> what he's saying is, taste my life. If someone claims to be a Christian, you should be able to taste their life. And what you should taste is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. That is the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in a genuine believer. If, however, you taste the fruit, and what you taste is murder, envy, malice, lust, greed, you have every right to question it. Does that make sense? If it's claiming to be an apple, but it tastes like a tomato, it's not an apple. Paul was writing to the church. He's saying, don't just simply assume that someone's a Christian because they say, hey, I'm a Christian. They might be saying it to get your vote. No, no, I'm sure that would never happen in this country. <laughs> I don't know. The important thing is, he's saying, look at the fruit in someone's life. You can tell. Now, let me add a very important thing to that. This is not a claim to perfection, and it never can be. The reason I respect the team I get to work with so well isn't because uh, they're going around claiming to be perfect, but I see evidence of that fruit in their life, and when they mess up, they say sorry, and I try and do the same. So yes, there has been a failure of integrity in the church at times, and that's why saying sorry is so important. I hope that answers the question. It's a very, it's a very good one. Oh, wow. My executive leadership training included sessions on situational ethics. Ha! Do Christians believe only in absolute ethics, and how does this connect with integrity? Wow. Um, just out of interest, was this Fletcher's original situational ethics, his book he wrote in the 60s, who made the term popular? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, okay. Um, here's the problem with all forms of situational ethics or relative ones. Either there is a standard that, if you like, passes judgment on our behavior, or we pass judgment on the standard. Does that make sense? Those are the only two ways around you can do it. Now, what Fletcher does in situation ethics is he basically says, look, the only ethic that matters is love, and you have to ask yourself the question, what is the most loving thing to do in any situation, and that's what you do. Well, the question then comes, well, how do we define love? And it becomes even more important, especially if you believe that truth and love themselves can't be separated out, which I don't think they meaningfully can. And the trouble with that is that truth has a moral quality to it. You know, that's why we talk about people lying or deceiving to us or, or misleading us or whatever it may be. That's a question about truth, but it has a very strong moral consequence to it. It's built in. So... The trouble seems to be with a lot of situational things is that love basically says, look, go with your feeling. 
I, I, I can remember my wife and I, when we lived in the north of England, we lived in a, initially, um, I was uh, doing my, my research at a university. We were living in a part of the, um, uh, of the UK, which was uh, uh, very, very poor. We had 25% unemployment. Uh, my wife and I were going involved in a local church. I got asked a series of questions about sexual ethics by a group of very young teenage girls that, to, my, to my wife and I that made it clear these questions weren't at all abstract. My wife and I thought we should, we should do something with these kids. They're, they're, they want to talk to someone they don't know who to talk to. So we said, hey, if you want to come around to our house once a week and talk, come. And 13 girls aged between the ages of 13 and 17 came to our house every week. Now I can say, without any exaggeration, this was one of the most terrifying audiences I have ever spoken to. <laughs> I, um, so the very first time they all came around, I wasn't sure exactly what to say, and so I gave all of them a blank piece of paper, so like a, a blank sheet of legal paper with no lines on it, and a pen, and I said, I want you to go into a corner, and I want you to write down the questions that you would most like to try and answer and discuss in this group. So then I'm going to collect all the pieces of paper in together, and I'll take the most common question first. And that's what we'll do next week, and we'll take the second most common the week after, and we'll work down the list. There was only one question that appeared on every single piece of paper. Only one. What is love, and why get married? You fall in love, you get married, you fall out of love, you get divorced, better not get married in the first place, define love. Now, I don't know if you've done any theology, philosophy, or anything in this area, but this is something that's pretty hard to define. It sent me into a panic. Uh, I fasted and prayed for five days, which was the only thing I knew how to do when I felt that scared. And when we got back into the room a week later, I invited all of them to sit down, and we sat down in a big circle, and I said, I'd like all of you to close your eyes, and everyone closed their eyes. And then I said, I'd like you to imagine the following scenario with me. I'd like you to imagine you go to school tomorrow, and the boy you like most comes up to you and says, I love you, how do you feel? And every face was... I mean, I've never seen such big smiles in my whole life. So I let them enjoy the moment, and then I say, okay, now I want you to imagine the following day you go back to school, you hear the same boy telling a different girl, I love you. Now how do you feel? And every smile disappeared. So after they've opened their eyes, they said, you see, the words I love you only mean something because they're given exclusively and committedly to you. And outside of that moral framework of exclusivity and commitment, those words mean nothing. That's why a very famous group of British philosophers called the Spice Girls wrote, um, <laughs> I see you know them over here. Um, they, in the chorus of one of their songs, the chorus said, don't tell me you love me, just tell me you'll be there. Don't tell me you love me. Tell me you'll be there. What's that about? Well, commitment. Truth. So I don't think that Joseph Fletcher's situational ethics allows the kind of relativity that even he wanted, which is just, seems to somehow go with some kind of um, instinct that comes within you. What are the moral and true considerations which inform a loving decision? And Christ made it very clear. The two greatest commandments were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he did put love right at the very center of it but it's not meaningful in the absence of a moral framework and truth. Um, but it is a very, very good question. Oh, wow. Huh. Gosh. How does the ability to trust again after an extreme betrayal change, if at all, as you become a Christian? Is it conditional based on the other person, person offender's subsequent actions or faith? Wow. I, um, I can remember speaking in this country a couple of years ago. 
And um, I got asked a slightly more extreme question than this. Um, it was from someone who freely identified themselves in, in, in the audience. Um, her husband had had uh, multiple liaisons with, with prostitutes. And uh, he had become a Christian. He joined the same church she had seven years ago. And she was still as angry as anything. So she came up to the microphone and she explained you know, a little bit of her situation without going into a lot of detail, just saying, I've been betrayed. I found out the details afterwards. And here's how I feel about it. So I said to her, I said, can I ask you, I said, do you feel like you're holding on to your anger and your resentment? And she said, yes. I said, is that working for you? And her, she just filled up with tears and she said, no. You see, here's the interesting thing about forgiveness. If someone wrongs you, and let's take a really extreme case. You're a small child, two years old, and you've been sexually abused. So in other words, we're not talking about some kind of contributory factor at all in any way, shape, or form. Let's take it in the most simple, straightforward. You pay the price for everything that's done against you. But if bitterness springs up and takes root in your heart, you pay the price again. And here's the problem. When you hold on to bitterness, it's not the person who abused you who suffers, it's you. So you end up paying twice for what they've done. Once for the actual acts, and then secondly for the bitterness you hold on to. So here's the question. If you let go within and you forgive them, does that mean, therefore, everything's okay and you would entrust your own children with them? And the answer is no, probably not, for some very good reasons, which are patterns of behavior at times can be very difficult for people to deal with properly. But we also have to understand how forgiveness works. Let's suppose um, I, I insult one of my good friends in this room. Um, one of the senior pastors in the church is sat in the middle because this is the only chance for him to sit somewhere near the back in church. He always has to be in the front. Tom is sat back at the far left over there next to his beautiful wife, Liz. So let's suppose Tom asks me a question. He stands up and says, Michael, before you go, just answer this. And I look at Tom and I say, Tom, that's a stupid question. You have the intellectual capacity more commonly associated with forms of pond life, which are invisible to the naked eye. Now, supposing that's my response to his question, and for some reason he feels insulted by it. <laughs> and the next day, you see me in, in town, I'm having a cup of coffee, and you come up and you pat me on the back and you say, Michael, how's your uh, relationship with uh, Tom Nelson, the uh, senior pastor of this group of churches? And I say to you, he's the closest friend I have on this planet. Now, I'd have to have the emotional IQ of a, or EQ of a carrot, right, to come to that conclusion. But let's suppose after everyone's left the room, he stays behind, and he makes it very clear that although he doesn't understand exactly why I said what I said, he loves me, he cares for me, and he extends grace to me. And as he does that, I break down, I apologize, I say, Tom, I had no idea where I said that or where it came from. It surprised even me. We stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning. He prays for me. He drives me back to where I'm staying. And when you come to me and see me in the coffee shop first thing in the morning and you say to me, how's, the, how's your relationship with Tom? And I say he's the closest person I have, my best friend I have on the planet, I may well be speaking the complete truth without a hint of exaggeration. So how does forgiveness work? If I have offended you, let's suppose I insulted you. It's your question. I said that thing to you. And as... The evening finishes, I walk out of the church, I pat you on the shoulder because I'm the first one out, and I say, sorry for insulting you. Now, would you forgive me? Be honest. 
Okay? One guy shaking his head, everyone else is even too scared to move. <laughs> okay, the chance is probably not. But let's suppose I insult you. And then after I've insulted you, my eyes well up with tears. I collapse on my knees. I start sobbing uncontrollably into the microphone. I can't even walk. I crawl up the aisle to where you're seating. I hold onto your ankles, and in front of everyone, I start begging for forgiveness. Now would you forgive me? Oh, some of you are very hard to please, I think. So. <laughs> you forgive me when you think I've earned it. That's how we normally forgive people. When they've suffered enough for what they've done wrong, when their guilt is great enough, and maybe hopefully a few bad things have happened to them or their family, maybe they lost their job, some kind of serious or embarrassing illness, you know, something like that, then we forgive because they've earned it. But that's not how forgiveness works in the Christian faith. The message of the Christian gospel isn't if you come and beg God for forgiveness with tears in your eyes, he'll forgive you because he feels bad about it. The message of the gospel is a bit more profound. It is that even before you knew you needed to be forgiven, God extended forgiveness to you as a gift. called grace. In the same way, in the early illustration, Tom would have extended it to me. How do you receive it? Saying sorry, repenting, saying sorry is how you receive forgiveness, right? So if you've ever unintentionally insulted somebody and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that, and they go, it was nothing, have you ever noticed the next day you see them, you walk into a room, you need half a second with them, have you noticed? And you can tell whether they've forgiven you or not. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a fascinating dynamic. If they haven't forgiven you, you can just tell. You go up to them again, you say, I'm so sorry. And they say, it was nothing, and walk off. Well, the next day you see them, again, you'll need half a second. And it can be very frustrating if they keep telling you it's nothing, and clearly it's something. If, on the other hand, they want to forgive you, but you're unwilling to apologize, you don't receive their forgiveness. Does that make sense? But if they're willing to forgive, and you're willing to repent, you're willing to say sorry, that's how you receive forgiveness. Now, saying I'm sorry isn't saying I'm sorry if I hurt you. That's how husbands apologize to their wives, and it doesn't work, okay? That's not an apology. That's a statement of regret. That's saying, I'm sorry you feel upset. My life has just become more complicated, and I'm feeling sorry about that, and I'm sorry that you feel that way. But that's not an apology. Saying I'm sorry means I was wrong, and I don't want to do it again. And if you mean it, you receive their forgiveness, and the next time you walk into a room with them, you need half a second, and you know it's okay and it's the most beautiful feeling in the world. And that's how forgiveness with God works. If you let go in your heart against someone who has wronged you, it will destroy the root of bitterness that's only affecting you and it's not affecting them at all. That's why an ancient person said, you know, holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it will hurt someone else. If you forgive them in your heart and you let go, it's good for you. But if they haven't been sincere about their repentance, they never truly receive your forgiveness. They can never be truly at peace with you, and neither will they be at peace with God. And you can trust him to do the right thing, because he isn't fooled by anybody. In a sense, that's why we as Christians should be able to forgive so freely, because we know there's someone we can trust who can really tell what's going on. Now, the second part to your question is very, very important. Subsequent behavior. If I offend and insult you, and I keep doing it again every day, and every day I say I'm sorry, well, that basically means is you know I don't mean it. It's the proof. Does that make sense? But if I mean it, you would expect it to be evidence in my behavior. 
because I don't want to do it again. That's part of saying I'm sorry. So yes, we do look for that, and it is very important. And it's one of the mean ways at which at a human level we discern is this actually real or not. But please don't hang on to your chronic suspicions. It will result in your own mis mis misery and undermine your capacity to form relationship with other people. Don't pay the price twice. Does that make sense? It's a very good question. I'm sorry I took a bit of extra time for it. I want to go on. Look, I might take one more of these and then go and eat some fish. Um, how do I build, rebuild integrity when I've done so much wrong? That's a fantastic question. Um, how is integrity formed? Okay, well, let's talk about these because these two questions are very similar. How do I rebuild integrity? How is integrity formed? Openness is, is so key for integrity. There's a group of people in this world who know everything about me. Now, I know you may find this hard to believe, but I'm not actually a perfect human being. The closest relationships I have in this world are with the people who know my weaknesses, they know my failings, they know my shortcomings, they know when I mess up, and they love me. Those are the most precious, intimate, close relationships I have. People who idolize me and worship me, well, you know, if there's anyone out there who is like that, you can't form friendships with people who think you're perfect. That's not friendship. There's a big di difference between adulation and friendship. So it's a question for all of us of finding a circle within which we can be open and honest about where we really are. Now, how do you know if you're doing a good job? Well, what I've realized and what many of you have realized is if people are judging you for a long distance, they may get you horribly wrong. And sometimes you just have to learn to live with that. But the closer people come, if you think of your circle of acquaintances as a series of concentric circles, the closer people get to you, make sense? the more integrity they should see. So if your inner circle see what you're really doing and saying, and they're affirming you, that's really good. But if the inner circle are questioning you, then you need to question yourself. You can't afford to be defensive there, even though that's our first reaction. Find a group of people. Be honest and real with what's going on. Healthy church life isn't about people coming to church pretending to be something they're not. But you also, at the same time, can't be open with everybody. That's simply not possible. Which is why finding a smaller group within which you can actually hold each other accountable is so important and transformative. But it is very vulnerable and very difficult. When I was in Washington, D.C. last speaking to senior political leaders, the group of people who impressed me the most were a group of people from different political parties but with a common faith. And I remember talking with all of them separately, and I said, there's something very impressive about you. And one of them said, we know enough about each other's lives to end our careers. But we love each other, we're committed, committed to a bigger picture, and we pray for each other. We want to be the, the best people we can be. And it just it stood out for miles. It was almost tangible. So if you want to form it, you have to find that reality, both with God and other people. How do you rebuild it if you've lost it? Well, you need to understand nothing is permanently lost before God. My suggestion is if you have suffered a catastrophic failure, you start with him because he already knows it better than you. And there is a peace which comes because there is a difference between our repentance with God. And let me try to explain it like this. Sometimes when we apologize to other people, we only tell them 70% of what we did wrong. Have you ever noticed that? Because if we were to tell them 100%, we're worried we'll lose the relationship. So we tell them enough so it looks bad, but not enough so it's catastrophic. Now it makes for a very uneasy peace. Because you live in fear that if the other 30% were discovered, everything would be over. But you see, repentance before God like that is impossible. 
He understands better what you did and knows what you did and remembers what you did way better than you. So there's no point lying before him. So he sees everything. And the fact that you can't pretend before him and the fact he knows how much you need to be forgiven and is willing to forgive you, if you are sincerely repenting before him, becomes the basis on which you then begin to rebuild your life and trust with other people. Because only he can really bring about that word, not only of information, but also transformation, set you on a new course and change the direction of your life. Well, look, you have been an incredibly gracious audience. I've taken up enough of your time. Um, I want to make sure that we don't finish too late. Um, if you are sitting here and you've handed up a card um, or you haven't filled in one yet and you would like to speak to someone more um, or you know you need to be saying yes and you want to talk with someone from the church about it, do leave your name, your email. I don't know everybody who's connected with this group. I know enough about them to have a high degree of confidence in their own integrity and their own desire to want to serve. And if there's any way that we can serve you or they can serve you, that's why we're here and that's why we're doing it. I hope this evening's been helpful. Thank you for being so kind. And may you God bless the rest of your evening. Thank you so much, Michael. Well, in a moment, I'm going to invite uh, Tom Nelson to come and close our evening together. Um, and as Tom is coming to do that, I just want to point out two things um, coming out of tonight as next steps. One, if you don't have a church home, um, we would love at Christ Community to be that for you. And if you'd like to hear Michael, he's speaking uh, tomorrow morning at our Leewood campus, which is 143rd and State Line, basically. And so that's at 9 a.m. and 10.45 tomorrow. If you've uh, been intrigued with what Michael's had to share this evening, you don't have a church home, you'd like to hear from Michael again, you can do that tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and 10.45 at our Leewood campus. Um, and also, beginning on March 31st, um, that's a Thursday, and then for sort of like eight Thursdays after that, we're going to be uh, hosting um, at, a, at an off-site location a conversation just on questioning Christianity and, and asking some of these hard questions about Christian faith and having dialogue. So if that's something you're interested in um, and you haven't turned in one of the cards, you can even just mark that, questioning Christianity, or um, and we'd love to get you the information uh, about that as well. So thank you again for being here tonight, Michael. Thank you. And Tom, would you come and close us? Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Uh, we're so grateful that you came. And uh, as Michael said, we do care deeply about being integral people. We believe the Christian faith speaks to all of life uh, and gives us that wholeness. Uh, and that's something we care deeply about. So again, I want to thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you, Brookside team, uh, for all the hospitality. And uh, we wish you all of God's best this evening. Go in peace. Thank you. <laughs>